Uh, sermon text this morning is John chapter 5, verses 1 through, I'm actually going to say 1 through 18. We're going to add one extra verse, I think, from what the bulletin says. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to chapter 5, John chapter 5, verses 1. If not, you can follow along in your bulletin. Upon finding that or pulling up your bulletin, let us pray before we enter the time of the sermon. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, it would, it would do what it always does, which is be living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces to division our hearts and our minds. And so, Father, we pray by your spirit, your heart would go deep within us, change us. Father, may we not handle it, but may it handle us. May we lay aside our thoughts, our concerns, and give us ears to hear and to see you clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this healing at the pool is actually unique in the scriptures. This is actually the only recorded instance in all the Gospels where we have Jesus at this particular pool. And we learn in verse 1 that Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem for a feast, probably Passover. Last week, I actually looked, uh, we looked at together when Jesus went as a 12-year-old boy to Jerusalem, Jerusalem for Passover. And here he is again. He's begun his ministry, and he's always being drawn back to Jerusalem, revealing himself more and more. And in, in this particular encounter, he's near the Sheep Gate, which we know from Nehemiah is a little opening in the north wall of the city. And he's by this sheep gate at a pool, which is called Bethesda, which means house of mercy. And this was a big pool. It was a double pool. In fact, each one was trapezoidal in shape. Uh, The overall length of the two two pools was about 320 feet north to south. So think of like double the size of an Olympic-sized pool. It's it's a large place. And there's colonnades, and there's people just kind of hanging out all over the place. But mostly who was there was a bunch of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed folks. So it wasn't a pretty place. 
Lots of people who couldn't walk, couldn't probably take care of themselves, all hanging out near this water. I'm sure there was a bit of a smell, and the vibe was not exactly a great thing. Notice in verse 4, it tells us why they were there. Go ahead and take a look here in verse 4. Hold on, let me see if I can find it. Verse 4. Can you find it? I don't have a verse 4. You have? Oh, Eric has it. Great. Okay. Come on up. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, okay. There's no verse 4. So in your Bible is probably a note that says, Some manuscripts insert, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So, so why is there no verse 4 in your Bible? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's worth mentioning. The oldest and most reliable manuscripts didn't have the verse. That's the answer. Uh, verse 4 tells us why people hung out at the pool to get healing, but it's probably not original. What happened uh, was it showed up a bit later. As the scribes were copying the scripture, one of them said, hey, we need a verse 4 to explain why people are at the pool. So somebody added it. Is verse 4 an inspired verse? No. But it doesn't go against anything as the rest of Scripture, and it doesn't undermine the credibility of the Bible at all. We're not afraid to explain these things. Okay. I must also say that there's no evidence that the pool here was really a place that God healed people. It certainly was believed to be so at the time. In fact, some commentators say that the waters were stirred by the movement of subterranean vents, and that it was just superstition. There's even some scholars that go as far as to say that if there was healing, it was part of the lying wonders of Satan talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Either way, we know this. There are sick people at the pool, and they're putting their hope on getting into the water as the first person when the water's is stirred. So now we get to see. Now we see what's going on. We see where Jesus is. A multitude of sick people hoping that the waters stir and that they are somehow able to be the first one to get in and be healed. It is a smelly place, and it is full of helplessness and despair. And here's the question that kept coming to my mind when I was reading this passage. What in the world is Jesus doing here? I mean, the pool was not a hot spot in Jerusalem to grab lunch or gain disciples. It wasn't a really great teaching spot. In fact, we only see one person getting healed. So if Jesus' point was to go and heal as many as possible, he didn't accomplish that. Why is Jesus here? Here's the answer. I think Jesus is picking a fight. He's picking a fight. Everything Jesus does is with intention. Everything Jesus does is decisional. Every thought, every word, every deed, every step, every action is with purpose. He doesn't just wander around trying to figure out what to do next in his ministry. Jesus never scratches his head and goes, hmm, what should I do? He is deliberate, calculated, and intentional with everything he does, everywhere he goes, and every word he utters to everyone he talks to. We forget that about Jesus. And I think Jesus is here to pick a fight in order to reveal his authority and power. And I realize I just said Jesus is picking a fight with an invalid man, and that doesn't you know, have a good ring to it, which is why the sermon title is not Jesus Picks a Fight with an Invalid Man. But notice there's really three fights we can look at here in this text. The first one is this, if you want to take notes. The fight with the invalid man's heart. He fights with his heart. And by heart, I mean the inner life. 
His inner thoughts, his inner motivations. All of us have that, right? Our inner dialogue, monologue. Hopefully it's a monologue. Your inner, your inner life and who you are. Verse 5 tells us so that this man had been there a very long time. 38 years. That's almost longer than I've been alive. It's hard to imagine. And Jesus sees him lying by the pool. And he knows, he knows supernaturally, maybe, he doesn't tell us, but somehow he figures out at the very least that he has been there a very long time. And he goes up to this invalid man who's been lying there for 38 years. 38 years of hope and those waters stir. 38 years of hope and he could somehow get the first one down in there. And Jesus goes up to him and asks, do you want to be healed? What a question. Do you want to be healed? A lot of bad sermons have been preached on that question, by the way. Preachers have said that Jesus came to show things like God helps those who help themselves. Or that you just have to desire healing for God to give it. But that's all rubbish. Verse 7 tells us what the man said to Jesus. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Now, I don't think that's the right answer, by the way. If Jesus comes to you and says, do you want to be healed? I think the right answer is yes. You just say yes. You say, please, son of David, have mercy on me. In fact, the man's answer is rather ridiculous. Now, Obviously, you know I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical doctor. But I did once live on a hospital ship for many months on a deployment uh, with the Navy. And one thing I find very interesting about the medical field, some of you may know this, is that people have to sign a consent form before you're allowed to be healed. In fact, if you go to a hospital for treatment, uh, they make you sign a legal document that you agree to receive treatment for whatever ails you. Uh, It's part of medical ethics. Consent is required before healing begins. In fact, there's a famous quote from Hippocrates, the, uh, the, the very famous Greek physician, you know, the one who came up with the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. We know some of that. Doctors still take a version of that Hippocratic Oath. But the quote from him is this. Before you heal someone, ask him if he's willing to give up the things that make him sick. Now, I am in no way, shape, or form suggesting that this invalid man chose to be that way. Or that he could have somehow simply chose to give up being paralyzed and start walking. But I want to suggest that some people do not want to be healed. Some people are very comfortable in their condition. And healing is no longer their goal or ultimate desire. Jesus likely sought out the one guy at the pool who maybe was just fine staying an invalid. Now, I'm sure there are things he didn't like about his condition. But nothing in the text, or very little in the text, suggests that he wanted healing. Now, that may be a confusing thought for you, and you may be thinking, why would he not want healing? Well, just because he didn't want to be an invalid doesn't mean he wanted something else. You see, his life was there. His friends, everything he knew. 38 years in one place. His personality, his purpose. All that he was was tied up in being an invalid at this pool and living under the identity banner of no one will help me when the water is stirred. That was his life. You and I know that change is hard, even good change. We become so comfortable with our dysfunctional, our various ways of living, that it becomes precious to us. The devil you know is more comfortable than the unknown. 
You know, one of the things that's very strange about ship deployments in the Navy is you get used to living in an uncomfortable situations. In fact, you actually come to like it. It's very strange. The same thing actually happens to prisoners who spend a long time in prison. You become institutionalized. I haven't spent time in prison, just wanted to throw that out there. But I have done the other one. And what I can tell you is you come to like it in a very weird way. There's things, for example, like open birthing for the enlisted. They, they sleep in a room of you know, 35 to 50 other people. The ship is rocking. There's lots of noise, announcements, little privacy. Showers are gross. But after a long deployment, many people have a hard time sleeping when they get back home. That change. They have a hard time sleeping away from the ship, away from the rocking, away from the announcements, away from the movement, away from the hum and buzz and the constant lack of privacy. Yeah, they're at home with their, with their wife by their side, their dog in the room, and yet they can't sleep. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. And it's not just true physically, but mentally. Sometimes people prefer anything to change. I've seen this in my counseling ministry. I talk to people all the time who are going through trials or are living in very destructive patterns of life. You know, they might have a terrible marriage or addicted to porn or they drink too much or workaholics or they're anxious or even something more mundane, but so on it goes. And all of those things are very real, genuine struggle that cause pain and misery in a person's life. And yet, sometimes a person doesn't necessarily want to get rid of them. Oh, sure, they don't want the bad things to come with it. Don't get me wrong. But they don't necessarily want to get rid of their disease or their malaise. Or we can say it like this. They're not willing to give up that which makes them sick. For example, just because a person doesn't want to be an alcoholic doesn't mean they want to stop drinking. Just because someone doesn't want to be angry or anxious doesn't mean they want to put the disciplines in their life to help them get rid of those things, to become joyful and peaceable. A person becomes very comfortable getting purpose and identity from dysfunction, even though it might slowly be killing you. I'll give you a couple scriptural examples, unless you think I'm just coming up with psychological stuff here, okay? Think about the Israelites in number 14. Numbers 14.4, they basically said, let's fire these leaders elect some new leaders, and I got an idea. Let's go back and be slaves in Egypt. They wanted to be slaves in Egypt because it seemed safer and more comfortable than starting a new life in an unknown, promised land where they would have to grow up and be who God was calling them to be. Slavery was their preference. Spiritually, it's also true. Think about Galatians 5.1. Paul had the right to the church in Galatia this. Stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He's speaking spiritually. Paul had to remind Christians not to run back to an old, sick, and death-producing way of life. To not run back to a law which only brought knowledge of sin and ultimately spiritual death. Isn't that crazy? Why would someone need to be reminded to not revert back to a pattern of life that only produced frustration and despair? Because sometimes we love being sick and miserable. Sometimes it feels better than nothing, and we like the banner of identity it provides us. Because some answers for why life is hard is better than no answers. Remember, I said Jesus is picking his first fight with this man's heart, his inner thoughts and motivations. Jesus didn't ask for permission to heal the invalid at the pool. He asked if he wanted healing. See, Jesus is also not a medical doctor. He is a conquering king coming to vanquish all of his enemies and his rivals. And sometimes those rivals and enemies exist in the hearts and minds of men. 
They exist in our attitudes, our comforts, and the things we cling to for identity and purpose apart from him. And Jesus sees the heart of this man, and he addresses the real enemy within. And when this man gave a sob story about how no one would help him, Jesus replied, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And that brings us to fight two, the fight with the fallen world. At once the man was healed, and what did he do? He took up his bed and walked. Notice he was healed first, though. Healed, and then he responded to Jesus' call. Do you see what happened, though? Jesus heals a man with nothing more than the force of his words. That should be almost incomprehensible to us. You know, I, I say this often, I think, when I preach. But if you're like me, when you read the New Testament, come to a passage like this in a Bible reading plan or on a Sunday morning or afternoon, and you just kind of like don't even blink. You're like, yep, Jesus said get up, and he did. It's as if being healed by, by words alone is almost routine and normal. But I could tell all of you to stand up right now, and most of you would give me that look like, do I have to? Right? And we're friends. But Jesus can say, get up to a man who's been unable to walk for 38 years, and he's instantly healed, and he hops up. We don't have a category in our brain for that type of power and authority. In healing his legs, Jesus picks a fight with the fallen world. He says to legs that don't work, start working. And he gets an instantaneous victory over the curse of sin and its stain on the world. It wasn't even a contest. It didn't go 10 rounds. It was over in the first five seconds. Jesus is a conquering king gaining victory over all his enemies. And he will have complete and total victory over sin's dominion in the hearts of men and in the world in which they live. And the one victory flows so nicely into the other. You see, Jesus reveals his power and authority not only in providing material restoration by healing this man's legs, but in providing the man a chance for a new identity and purpose. It is as if Jesus is saying, because I can heal your legs, you should know and trust me that I can lead you in every way in life. You can trust me as I call you to become a new man. Yes, I can heal your legs, but I also call you to a life away from this place. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And if you jump forward a little bit, take a look uh, at verse 14 of John chapter 5. It says this, Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. We see Jesus revealing his power and authority a little bit more in this fight. He's giving him a command. He's exercising his authority over the man's life he just healed. He's not asking for permission again, by the way. He warned him of a greater danger than being paralyzed. And I don't always like John Piper, but I do like how John Piper summarizes Jesus' words here. He says this, I have sought you out to tell you the point of what I did to you. I healed your body with the aim that it would lead to the healing of your soul. I conquered your sickness with the view of conquering your sin. I healed you for the sake of your holiness. Jesus first shows he has authority over the man's legs by commanding them to work again, but now he shows he has authority over his very life. He says, you're mine. He tells the man to go and sin no more. Jesus never just comes to people and saves them and says, have a nice day. No, Jesus comes with power and love and then says, follow me. Be holy because I am holy and you are mine. You are not your own. Those are the marching orders for a Christian. 
Ephesians 2.10 puts it like this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared hand that we should walk in them. And the invalid man is calling, called out of his old life. He's equipped to be a new man. And Jesus, as the conquering king, without consent, claims his life and wins the fight. And that moves us into the third fight of this passage, the fight with the religious leaders. We've got to jump up to verse 9 to see this. It tells us, for example, in verse 9 that it's the Sabbath. Do you think Jesus knew it was the Sabbath? Yeah, most definitely. He definitely knew it was the Sabbath. Do you think he intentionally went to a place of despair and chose to heal someone on the Sabbath? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's decisional, right? Jesus is going here, and he knows it's like a hornet's nest. And he's like, oops, just kick that. And that's why I tell you he's looking for a fight. He's doing it to reveal more of his power and authority to everyone in Jerusalem. Now, the Old Testament law forbade work on the Sabbath, including things like bearing loads or taking stuff from one domain to another. You can look in Jeremiah 17 for an example of that. Something as simple as picking up a mat and carrying it to another place would technically be a violation, uh, as, especially as the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders interpreted it. And the Jews, your Bible says Jews, but the, the word implies religious leaders. They see this man who is just healed, walking by the pool, carrying his mat, and they get upset. And they go up to him and they say, hey, what are you doing? And the man says, I'm just doing what the guy told me to do, okay? And so the Jews say, well, who told you to do this? Who told you to break the Sabbath? Who gave you permission? And the invalid man says, I don't know his name. I just get more and more astounded by this guy. I don't know about you, but if I had been an invalid for 38 years and then was miraculously healed by a spoken word of a stranger, I might ask him his name before I walk off. Just saying. You know, other times in Scripture, when people respond to Jesus' power, they do it by worshiping him. Think about, for example, uh, when Jesus walked on water in Matthew 14. His disciples, their response, they bowed down and worshiped him. They saw Jesus' manifested power and authority and they said, that guy we worship. Or the blind man who was given sight in John 9 a few chapters later. What did he do? He believed in Jesus and worshiped him. How about this for a crazy example? Even the demonic legion of Mark 5, when it sees Jesus coming near, Scripture says, ran and fell on his knees, the man possessed by the legion, before the presence of Jesus, prostrated himself before the Lord. And yet when this dull-witted, self-pitying invalid is healed of an affliction that had power over his life for 38 years, he does not even take the time to ask the name of his healer. Astounding. Not only does he not know the name, but when confronted about breaking the Sabbath, he blames Jesus. He says, uh, it was that guy. Uh, this guy told me to do it. And when he finds out later who it was, who Jesus was, he goes and tells him. He goes, it was Jesus. I found out. Now you get him off the hook. Verse 16 tells us that the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was working on the Sabbath. That that was the point of contention. That Jesus' work, his ministry, who he was, and what they wanted to, where they drew the line, it came to a head on the Sabbath. The regulations dealing with that. And so how does Jesus respond? He responds in verse 17 by saying, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is basically a reminder of Jesus that God is not governed by Sabbath regulations. In fact, God made the Sabbath for man is a blessing. As such, the Sabbath regulations in no way, shape, or form have any authority over God the Father. 
Jesus is telling the religious leaders that he is with the Father. He operates like the Father because he and the Father are one. In fact, the rest of John 5 is describing his relationship, some of it, with the Father. Remember also that Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath three times. And he proclaims that he is a greater authority than the law. And though he submits himself to the law and fulfills the law, he, as God made flesh, has the authority to overrule any pharisaical tradition or regulations because the creator is always greater than the created. Jesus can do whatever he wants on the Sabbath because he's the king. He's the boss. And Jesus chose to heal this man knowing that it would violate the Sabbath in order to display his authority and power and proclaim that he triumphs over man-made regulations and religion. He chose to pick a fight with the religious leaders in such a way that their ridiculousness would be evident to all. I mean, everybody would be seeing this would happen here, and they say, well, these guys are upset because he's carrying a mat. But Jesus just healed this guy with the power of his words. Everybody in their hearts and minds would go, wow. I mean, it's the, the wisdom of Jesus and how he chooses to display his power and authority, how he chooses to pick fights and, and manifest himself is just unreal. It's awe-inspiring. The Pharisees are upset that a man carried a mat, but they miss the fact that Jesus, by the power of his word, healed a man who couldn't walk. In the very, very next, the next verse, in verse 18, it tells us they wanted to kill Jesus, not just for breaking the Sabbath, but for making himself equal with God. They understood the declaration of verse 17 to mean that Jesus is saying, I am equal to the Father. And they were right. That's what Jesus meant. They just didn't like it. Jesus is declaring his authority. He is not just a healer or a moral teacher. He is the authority of God the Father, and he will use it. He, like God, works on the Sabbath. He, like God, creates things by his word. He, like God, has the right to rule over everything that exists. Jesus never picks a fight he can't win. He is and will always be undefeated. You know where there's some proof of that, by the way? Sitting in this room. It's you. It's me. It's us. You know, we, we like to think of Jesus in lots of different ways, and it's, it's not inappropriate to think of him as gentle and lowly and in his love for us. But we also remember that Jesus came to us when we were enemies of God. While we were still sinners, Jesus loved us. He came to us and said, get up, take up your mat and follow me. He picked a fight with us when we were rebels. Jesus took us by force without consent, as it says, out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We didn't transfer ourselves. Jesus came and rescued us, conquered us, and he now rules over us. And that means all our enemies are now his enemies. All our cause is now his cause. Our loyalties, our affections are now united with him in every single way. He is our king. And so what is Jesus doing in this passage? Well, he's displaying his power so that we may believe he is the Christ. And he's displaying his authority so that you and I may live obediently as new creations for his purpose and his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the, your word that teaches us. We thank you for what a marvelous display of Jesus as a conquering king, coming to pick a fight with those who are in opposition to him, lovingly winning, displaying not only his authority and his wisdom, but his love, his grace, his mercy in every 
every circumstance. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the same today, that he conquers our hearts and he rules over us and he's still active. Father, we pray that this truth would go deep into our hearts and minds and that we would live for you and your kingdom all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.